Well, it's uh, great to see everybody here today, and um, I've enjoyed uh, the singing. It, it, it uh, raises our thinking, raises our minds, uh, even raises our emotions uh, toward God. And uh, so we, we call that worship in song, and um, now we're going to worship in the uh, sitting under the teaching of the Word. And this is worship also. This is bringing us into God's presence. This is us declaring God's worth and that he is worthy of all praise. And, uh, and so this is worship also. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now, and we'll begin. Lord, we uh, come to you this morning, and uh, we are grateful for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we would be a lost people. We would, um, we would be out in the cold. We would be on our own. We would be in the dark and in futility if it weren't for you sending Jesus for us. And we praise you and we give you great thanks. Lord, we bow down this morning to you and we worship you and you alone. We don't worship some created thing. We don't worship some other person. We don't, uh, we don't, we don't bow down to this world, but instead we bow to you. We acknowledge that you are God and we rejoice that we get to know you because of what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, as we come now to your word and we're going to look at, uh, at a, a passage that can be a little difficult for us, uh, a little um, hard maybe, it can be hard to hear sometimes. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look into your word and to understand it in the way you would have us understand it. I pray that we would be able to unpack what is intended here and unpack the message. And I pray that it would be for our benefit, that it would be for the building up of the body of Christ, that it would be also for your very great glory in us and in our lives and in our congregation. So, Lord, we come now and ask that you, by your spirit, would work in us. Pray that you would help us to engage. Pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would be sensitive, that we would be responsive to the moving of your spirit, that we would be obedient to you. And, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles there, go ahead and open to James chapter 4. If you would, please, James chapter 4. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and go ahead and grab that. If you're using that pew Bible, we're turning to page 1013, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just take that with you. That one's yours. And uh, so uh, while you're turning to James chapter 4, I was thinking about how to introduce our message today, and I think the best way probably to introduce our message is to fast forward to the end and what we're going to look at my uh i have i have children who love to read and that's one of my highest priorities in in parenting at least education wise is that my kids love to read as much as my wife and i do and and mission accomplished on on numerous of them so far so praise the lord for that but we have kind of this disagreement in our family about whether you do or do not look at the last page so, I, you know, there's a sinful portion of our family that wants to turn and flip to the back and, and look at how it ends before they know the story. And it drives me crazy. But we, so we have this ongoing discussion. And, and when, we, uh, when we go to watch a movie, Steph will, uh, will, will look at the, um, we'll see a, a, a review of it beforehand. We go to uh, PluggedIn.com uh, and, and, uh, and look online to see a Christian review of this movie before we go. And sometimes it'll have spoilers. Well, I don't want any spoilers, but she loves the spoilers. And so, uh, but today I want you to have a spoiler. 
Okay, I, I want you to start our message today with a spoiler. And so I'm going to read the passage and then uh, start at the end a little bit, and then we will go back through. So we are in James chapter 4, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 4 through 10. 4 through 10 is what we're going to be reading. Now, if you've read the book of James or you've read other New Testament books, you see that usually when the author is referring to the people he's writing to, there's something like my beloved brethren or brothers or dear ones or beloved or something like that. And so in our passage, you can see why I want to flash to the end real quick, because in verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. So pause for a second. You see why I want to jump to the end? That's heavy. That's heavy stuff right there. Verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So I want to camp on those last couple of words just for a second by way of introduction. It, it's possible when when we preach, uh, when when we're um, when we're talking about such a heavy passage like this, really to make things very heavy. Right. And you come away kind of crushed under the load of it and you you, you kind of walk out the back door feeling like there's uh you know the weight of the world is on your shoulders and that's not james's intention here and that's not my intention so i want to highlight those last few words look at the end of that look what he says there and he will exalt you what's the result of all of this god lifting us up god building us up it's intended to be encouraging it's intended to be something that results in us being lifted up, being strengthened, being encouraged in life. It's just that our passage here really focuses on some of the nitty gritty to get you to that point. And so before we dive into it, I, I want us to keep that in mind, to keep that end in mind that God's desire here and the result of this is that he builds us up. He encourages us. He lifts us up in the end. But there's some heavy stuff that we need to deal with going into it so that we can understand why it's so important that we be lifted up and so that we can understand what exactly it is from which we have been lifted up. And so there's going to be some heavy stuff and we're going to spend some time down in there and it's going to feel a little heavy. But keep this in mind and we will finish coming out the end talking about the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. All right. So just by way of warning, and so you can kind of keep that in mind as we're going through this, it's going to get heavy. And that that is James' intention for a while. But you see at the end that he lifts us up, and the grace and the mercy of God in our lives is really his end goal, his uh, the end that he has in sight. So let's turn to our passage here. And uh, we're looking at James chapter 4. We're going to do 4 and 5 in this first bullet point here. 
Uh, he says, you adulterous people. Yeesh. That's heavy. You know, I, I've been called a lot of things. I've never been called that before, except when I read the Bible. That's heavy, right? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Before we jump into this, why are we talking about this passage? Why are we talking about such a such a humbling and and difficult, heavy passage? Well, we've been talking for the last couple of months about God's holiness, about how he's high and lifted up, right? About how he's pure, he's clean of sin and how he wants his people also to be free from sin, to be clean, to be walking with God, to exhibit holiness in their lives, to be practically free from sin also. And as we think about God's holiness and we think about God's standard for us and what he wants for us, there's also this uh, a humbling that happens. Because I realize before a great and almighty and holy God, I'm, I'm lowly. I'm lowly. And so there's this humbling thing that comes to us. And we want to focus on that humbling. And we've called today the humility, the believer's hope. Because there's hope in humility. See, everything within me wants to just not hear this stuff about how uh, heavy my burden is or how humble I am or how low I am before God or the way I should think about my sin. I'd really just rather not think about my sin and go on and think about the good stuff. And I'm probably not alone in that. And so I want to rush past this stuff. And James says, you can't do that. You can't do that. You got to slow down and you got to look at this. And so he starts talking with very heavy language there. He talks about you adulterous people. Don't you know what your life is saying? He says, he talks about friendship with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So think about friendship with the world. The result is enmity with God. I don't want that. That's a bad thing. I don't want that. That's an undesirable outcome. But there's something that I'm doing, right, that, that indicates something, that bad outcome, right? There's some... Uh, something that I've got going on, friendship with the world. And he says, don't you know that's enmity with God? So what do you think friendship with the world looks like? Now think about that for a little bit. Well, first of all, you've got to talk about what's the world, right? It's not just the population on the earth, right? And it's not just the geography of the earth. It's the entire world system that's been, remember, fallen and corrupted ever since Genesis chapter 3. It's twisted. Not just with disease, of course that's a result. But we see, we see the world functioning with desires, with, with priorities, uh, with, with the things that they hold up as good that are exactly contrary to what God values, what God desires, what God holds up as good. That's the world system. It's ultimately demonic. It's satanic. It's been twisted and influenced by sin in this world. That's the world. So what does friendship with the world look like? Friendship with the world. Well, John talks about it in, in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He, he talks about almost all we need to know about what it means to be friends with the world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... 
the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friendship with the world, loving the world, kind of liking the way the world goes about things, the things the world values. Remember that twisted system when we buy into it, when we agree with it, when we when we take our cues about what is right morally from the world instead of from God. Or when we take God's cues from his word and we kind of twist them to make them fit into the world because I really don't want to stand out. And so I take my cues, I take my values, I take my priorities. What, what, uh, what the world says is right, I declare that is right. And of course, there are giant ways we can think about that. There are enormous political issues and different moral issues going on in our culture. But there are also very subtle issues that go on about the way we live our lives, how we spend our time. I was reading a uh, chapter for Megan. Uh, we were talking about the book um, uh, Mere Christianity written by C.S. Lewis, and she had some questions about the last chapter. And so I was reading that last chapter there, and he was, he was describing kind of what a Christian's like in this sort of context. And, and uh, C.S. Lewis has a way with words, and he was talking about when you observe someone who's a Christian, when you see someone who's a Christian, he kind of described the things that they value. And one thing he said in there really stood out because I thought, that's goofy, because he said, when you see this person, it seems like they always have time. And I thought, <laughs> when was the last time my family thought I had time? When was the last time my friends thought I had time? Right? I, in some way, I have taken my cues about the way I spend my time from the world. I valued what the world values in that small way. And so I've booked up my schedule solid. And so if C.S. Lewis saw me, he would definitely not tick that box. That guy has time. Right. And so I've taken I've taken some of my cues from the world. And there are other ways that we could think about that. But that's friendship with the world. And look what James says actually is true about that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Or do you suppose it's to no purpose? The scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And so we talk about friendship with the world, but we also talk about spiritual infidelity, spiritual infidelity. He started off this passage by saying, you adulterous people, adulterous. He didn't say idolatrous or he didn't say sinful. He could have said those things. Those would be, he says, you adulterous people. There's something about our friendship with the world that indicates we're, we're flirting with the world and cheating on God. And that's the picture you see all over in the Old Testament. All over you see that, that kind of picture where God is picturing himself as the husband and he has taken the bride who is Israel. And when Israel goes after idolatry and they go after following after the world and the nations around them, they are committing spiritual adultery. They are, they are spiritual infidels against God. They are flirting with the world when they are married to God. There's a very... Uh, probably one of the most poignant examples in all of the Old Testament. If you have, if you have uh, 20 minutes to read Exodus 16, excuse me, not Exodus, uh, Ezekiel 16, talks gives this picture, almost like a parable, 
of God finding Israel, helpless Israel, and how he takes care of her and he raises her. And she, she, she goes from being a baby to this beautiful woman. She grows up and then he comes along and now she's a grown woman. And, and so he, he takes her as his bride and he takes care of her. And what does she do? She runs off. She runs off with the neighbors. And so he says this in Ezekiel 16 and verse 32. He says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. And so that's the picture when we as God's people are flirting with the world. When we go after and we pursue the things of the world and we, we turn away from our, from our God who has, who has saved us, He's done all of this for us, and we go after the world. It's spiritual infidelity, which of course arouses, see, God's jealousy arouses God's jealousy. What do you think about God being jealous? What does that raise in your mind? God is jealous. Normally, if you say to another person, now oh, you're just being jealous. Well, that's, you're saying a bad thing about them as if they, they have no right to be jealous, right? What is jealousy? Well, to, to, particularly jealousy as it relates to God. To look at uh, theologian Wayne Grudem, he says, God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. He continually seeks to protect his own honor. Is God's honor worth protecting? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's worth protecting. We tend to think of it as a bad thing, but it's not at all a bad thing for God to seek to protect his honor. He fully deserves it. His honor, his name is to be praised above all, And when his honor has been besmirched, when it's been sullied, when it's been muddied, it is his right and it is good for him to protect his honor. And so he does that. He's jealous. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Genesis 2, 7 says, talking about creation, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He created us and breathed into us his spirit, the spirit of life, as it were. And so by virtue of his create, having created us, by his creation, he has made his, his spirit to dwell in us in that sense. And so we, as his creatures, owe that to him. But it's more than that, right? Because we fall into sin. Mankind falls into sin. And instead of just destroying us all, and God had the right to do that, instead he sent Jesus to redeem us. And when we are redeemed, once again, we receive God's Holy Spirit. So more than just the spirit of life that we have within us, he has now put his Holy Spirit of God to dwell within his people. And so he has put his spirit within us and he is jealous, jealous for that spirit. We owe him everything. We owe our allegiance to him in a a way that we can't even compare on this earth. And he jealously yearns for that allegiance. And he does not like it when we're flirting with someone else. Spouses, you, you wouldn't like it if your spouse flirted with someone else and you would be right not to like it and you would be right to be jealous and you're a sinner too god is not and he is right to be jealous his jealousy is flared up when we flirt with the world when we are spiritually unfaithful 
But there is hope in this predicament that we got, have gotten ourselves into. And that hope is humility. We have hope in humility. First of all, he talks about a gracious solution. It says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. God in Christ has purchased pardon for whoever would believe in him. He's done all that it takes to redeem them in Christ. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe whoever would believe would not perish but would have eternal life what amazing incredible grace so what if his blood-bought people begin to make friends with the world to make friends with god's enemies after he has done that is he done offering grace has he done all that he's going to do that's it Our passage says, no, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. We don't understand how merciful and gracious God is with us. Read through the Old Testament and see how long-suffering God is with the stiff-necked nation of Israel. Again and again and again, for century after century, they disobey him and go after idols. We read in the New Testament and we see that God is willing to pay himself to pay that price to purchase our final pardon. The mercies of God, they're incomprehensible. But the psalmist takes a stab at it. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. A great, great passage in the Bible. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So he offers a gracious solution. But he continues on, he says, But God gives more grace, verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's also our memory verse, right, from Peter. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. He opposes the proud. Listen to it from Proverbs chapter 3. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. Toward the scorners, he's scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. Or as James here quotes it in Elsewhere in the New Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How do we understand that? Jesus, I think, probably had that proverb in mind when he was speaking in Luke chapter 18. Flip back there if you can. Left a few books. Luke chapter 18. He gives a little parable, a little word picture. That's on page 877 if you're using your pew Bible. He also told this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you have two guys, one rather proud of himself and what he's done, making his case before God about why he deserves great things from God. Bless me, Lord, because I'm a really great guy. And you know how that works out. You've got the other guy who wouldn't even lift up his face. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy, the second guy, he went away justified. He's the one that went away justified. Not that first guy, because God opposes the proud But see, he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And this sounds a whole lot like Isaiah 57, 15 that we talked about last week. A whole lot like that. That says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with him who's of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God whose residence is in a high and holy and lofty and other place has a second residence. With the contrite and lowly of spirit. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Since our only hope is in humility and in submission to God, what practically does that look like? What does humble submission to God look like? First of all, it looks like active fidelity. Active fidelity. Remember we talked about being spiritual infidels? Now we're talking about active faithfulness. Active fidelity. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. To submit to God means to place yourself willingly under his authority. He gets to call the shots. You're under his authority. You're trusting what he says. You, you're going to do what he says. You submit to what he says to do. It means submitting to his laws, to his expectations, to the way that he has decreed that, that creation be run, not to the way the world has decreed that the world will be run. Resist the devil and... He will flee from you. The devil has no real power, by the way, over those who are in Christ. No real power. His only power over you is the power of persuasion. The power of persuasion. He's been defeated already on the cross and defeated already in your life when you were included in Christ. And his only influence is by persuasion. If we resist If we don't give in to that persuasion, if we instead declare our loyalty and our submission to God, if we show it by our actions, the devil has no option left but to flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resisting the devil is 
really an aspect of submitting to God. We stand against his enemy who would woo us or who would coerce us to come to his side, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But there's a second part, drawing near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's the flip side. Draw near to God. Seek him. Pursue him. Set aside your pursuit of the world. Give up your flirtation with the world. Pursue him. Seek him. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. That sounds like a promise. So active fidelity is, first of all, what humble submission to God looks like. Second of all, it looks like personal cleansing. He continues on. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Well, cleansing your hands has to do with external cleansing. It has to do with your actions. It has to do with the things you do. Clean up your life. Pause for a second. We are not talking about what it means first to become a Christian. You don't clean up your life so that you can become acceptable to God and therefore you can be in Christ and, and have salvation. That's not at all the way it works. We're talking to Christians here about examining your own life, about what you're doing, right? About the things that you're doing. And he says, Christian, clean up your life. Clean up your hands. The things that you do. Jesus said in John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's who loves him. Submit to God in your behavior. But he continues and he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Your heart, your heart. That sounds a lot like what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5. Remember when he was talking about, you've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, and he begins to address a heart issue. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, and he addresses a heart issue. I've heard it said that, that uh, Jesus' teaching of the law kind of softened things a little, made it a little easier for us. That's not how I read Matthew chapter 5. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and if you don't come away just a little bit awestruck, you're not reading it right. Jesus said, oh yeah, you've heard that it was said don't commit adultery. You even approach that in your heart, and it's sin. You've committed adultery in your heart already. Don't commit murder. And most of us here are like, okay, I've never done that. Jesus said, well, look into your heart. Have you turned down that path in your heart towards hatred? And that path, by the way, ends, if you had your way, if that sin had its way, ends in murder. Have you turned down that path in your heart? That's murder. He's talking about what goes on in our hearts Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Dealing with our own thoughts, dealing with our own attitudes, dealing with our own motives in the way we behave. Christian, examine. Purify your hearts and don't be double-minded. So it looks like those two things. It also looks like, see, mourning your sin. Mourning your sin. I want to pause for a second and remind you where we started this sermon. Just a verse or two later, okay? Remember that that is coming. Remember that's coming. But focus on this for just a second. Mourning your sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Well, it doesn't sound like rejoice always, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like that at all. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Spend time mourning your sin for what it really is. It is a wicked affront to God. It's a wicked affront to God's character. And you need to come to grips with just how wretched your sin really is. It's not wretched because you got caught. It's not wretched because of what other people would think about it if they knew you did it. It's not wretched because it's against some rule. It's wretched because it's against God's character. It's wicked and it's grievous and it flies in the face of who God is and who he has made you to be when he created you in his image. And more than that, when he redeemed you at the cost of his own son. Be wretched and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Boy, I much prefer I much prefer the lighthearted and encouraging and the happy results of the gospel. I prefer to talk about that. I prefer to think about that. I prefer to talk to you about that. And that's coming. And that's coming. I appreciate all the encouragement. I appreciate the comforts of being in Christ as much as the next Christian. But we often refuse to give appropriate thought and consideration to how we offend God with our sin and with our self-centeredness. We like to skip over that. We go right past that, run right past it, not even think about it. And one result of that is that we blindly may press on in our sin, not giving a thought to how egregious it is, how badly it offends God. We end up trying to serve God and our sin or the world at the same time. Another result is that we miss out on just how profound the encouragement at the end is. Oh, the comfort of the gospel when you understand the gravity and the result of your sin. Even now, Christian, the comfort of the gospel when you understand the gravity and the result of your sin. Let's don't gloss over the darkness and the depth of our sin. Instead, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, as we're transitioning to the conclusion here, I do want to point out, he is not saying... Live your life there. Go to the gutter where it's miserable and spend the rest of your miserable existence there. That is by no means what he's saying. He's not saying stay there. He fully agrees with Paul about rejoicing, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. He fully agrees with Paul. But we shortchange ourselves when we don't bring ourselves to this point Every now and again in our lives or when we're confronting some sin in our life where we understand the gravity and the depth of it and what it really means in the face of who God is in the face of what God's done in your life. And if we skip it, if we'd rather just, you know, audit that class and go on to the next thing and miss it. Right. If we would rather just pass that up and not look at it, we don't fully appreciate these next words that are coming up. And so he wants us to deal with our sin. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to, to work through it and to spend some time in that place where we are wretched and we mourn and we're weeping. And the laughter that we so desire and we've had before and we will have again, set that laughter aside and learn from this situation. Learn from the gravity of the sin in your life. The Lord wants us to understand its true nature. And that's because look at what comes in verse 10. 
He recaps, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. That result is powerful. Just a few little words. Just a few little words. But how much better you understand the Christian life when you've done that, when you see your sin like that. How much better you understand the freedom that we have in Christ, the fact that I no longer bear the guilt of those sins because they were put on Jesus. How much better I understand that when I have gone through that time of looking at my sin, of understanding, of humbling myself before God. If I don't humble myself before God, I keep him at arm's length. And God God opposes the proud. And I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I would rather have a true understanding of what my sin really is and come out the end. He will exalt you. I would rather come out the end being built up by God rather than like this Pharisee in the prayer who built himself up. God so desires to restore you. He so desires to build you back up. It is a display of his glory when he does so. Is it, is it, it is a display of his grace and his mercy and his work in your life when he builds you up and when he makes something out of you. And it's exactly the opposite when you build yourself up and when you make something out of yourself. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. He will exalt us eternally and in the future in heaven. And we won't have to deal with this sin business anymore. And we will look back on our lives. And we won't feel pain anymore over our sin. Because it has fully been dealt with in Christ. And we will be able to look and we will be able to see and we will be able to understand God will exalt us. But even in this life, He will exalt us. He will build us back up because He doesn't want us to be squashed bugs. He wants us to be built up in Christ. He wants us to be new in Christ. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to finish with these verses. Verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, if you're in your uh, pew Bible, it's page 976. Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 are not entirely unlike what we've just been talking about in James, except he's pointing out more specifically talking about before you were a believer. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, remember the end of verse 10 in James chapter 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he's not done By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved 
through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God builds us up even in this life. He took us from when we were dead and made us alive in Christ and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he's not done. He has a life for us in this earth, in this life. We will honor him even by the way we live. He will exalt us. And that's glorious. That is glorious. So the heavy parts of this message, the heavy parts of James chapter 4. God wants him to bear fruit in your life. That we do think about our sin. We do humble ourselves before God. And we understand the truth and the weight and the gravity and how horrendous our sin is. We throw ourselves on God's mercy. And he builds us up. That's what people don't understand about Christianity. That's what when you're sharing the gospel with your non-Christian friends, they don't get. They think you've got to dust up your life so that you can become a Christian. They think you've got to to figure things out and then maybe you'll, you'll be able to be a Christian. And we Christians know that is not the case. God takes us when we were dead, when we were actually at enmity with him. And he makes us alive in Christ. He raises us up. He exalts us. He is the one who has even fashioned this life for us to walk in obedience. It is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. What an amazing truth. My prayer for us is that we would be encouraged by this, that we would take that time, that we would think about our sin, that we would spend some time contemplating our sin, particularly if we're in a position where we're we're showing friendship with the world, we're flirting with the world, we're flirting with God's enemy when, when he's our spouse, that we would think about that, that we would address it, that we would humble ourselves before God and we would receive his building us up. We would receive his encouragement. Let me pray for us. Lord, this, this is heavy because my sin is heavy against you. And I, do, I don't like to think about it. I like to focus on what you've done for me. I like to focus on the, the encouraging things about the gospel. I like to focus on those things. And, and we like to talk about those things. And I don't like to talk about sin. I don't like to think about my sin. But I'm challenged too in this verse, in this passage. I do want to mourn my sin, not so that I can be a down-in-the-mouth, drab uh, Christian who's beaten down and like a bug, but so that I can be someone whom you have built up, whom you have exalted. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that you would exalt us in your time, in your way, as we humble ourselves before you. Lord, we do that now, and we rejoice in your mercy And we rejoice in your grace that you would do such a thing. We rejoice in your kindness toward us. We have not earned it, and yet you give it to us. Bless us today and help us to think on these things. Work in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work 
and word. You're dismissed.